Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Yes, the rules have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, June 29th, 2007. This week, episode 43 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is cyber jockey Zach Zlotnick. Are you okay? Uh, yeah, my uh, uh, my rope broke. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us here today, Zach. Of course. My usual co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, is on the road, actually probably up in a big plane somewhere right now, so he won't be able to join us, but we've got a great show for you anyway. You can uh, contact us by going to www.iaqradio.com, which is under construction, but still open for business also we have uh, iaq council credits available by emailing me at joe.hughes h-u-g-h-e-s at iaqtraining.com we'll send you out a little quiz on the show and you can get your renewal credits today's segments include the microband trivia quiz we've got a special guest mr bob baker iaqa president and industry icon with an announcement uh, we'll bring up in a moment and of course steve sauer of ie connections with what's news we've also got a few iaq radio highlights that we're going to be bringing to you this week now i want to turn it over to cj for the microband trivia quiz brought to us by microband systems the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com Thank you, Joe. At this point, I would just like to say that the trivia questions for the past two episodes on our forums at iaqradio.com have remained still unanswered at, at this point. Can you imagine that, Joe? Very unusual, Zach. Yes, it is unusual. Two available on forums, F-O-R-U-M-S, at iaqradio.com. Forums.iaqradio.com. All right, let's get you the uh, envelope for this week's question, Zach. Sure thing. Thank you, Joe. The microband trivia question for Friday, June 29th, 2007, deals with energy. How many BTUs... Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Already the acronym police have gotten you. Yeah, that's right. I'm not immune to this either. 
How many British thermal units, also known as BTUs, are in a barrel of oil equivalent, also known as a BOE? In other words, how many BTUs are in a BOE? Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you. Jump on there and get your prizes for answering the trivia question. Okay, let's uh, move forward here. Our first guest today is going to be Mr. Bob Baker. Bob is widely known in the indoor environmental industry. His passion is the impact of bacterial and fungal contamination on the indoor environment, and especially the HVAC systems that serve us. And this is kind of new, so I want to get it right. He recently established the RGB Group to provide business advisory services to building owners, their staffs, and the service and product suppliers who serve them. Their services are centered around the maintenance of heating, ventilation, and air conditioning systems and their impact on indoor air quality. He also serves on the board of the Consumer Specialty Insurance Company and is the chairman of chairman Ah, I'll get this word, emeritus emeritus of BBJ Environmental Technologies, which he founded in 1993. Before BBJ Environmental, Bob worked as an executive in both the public and private sector. He came to Florida from the University of Texas prestigious MD Anderson Cancer Center, where he served as vice president of administrative services. Prior to that, he was an executive with Gulf Oil Corporation. Bob's been an enthusiastic contributor to our industry through several organizations. He is the president of the Indoor Air Quality Association. He sits on two ASTM standards committee, four ASHRAE standards and technical committees, and he has written numerous papers, articles, and is a regular ASHRAE presenter. He is chair of the ASHRAE ACA HVAC inspection and maintenance standards. Uh, I knew it was coming. Ashray, we'll, we'll have to get to those in a moment. Maintenance standards project committee, SPC 180P, and the indoor air quality committee of the Consumer Specialty Products Association. He has been awarded the Ashray Distinguished Service Award and is a member of the Ashray Standards Committee. An avid researcher, Bob holds both product and method patents in the HVAC and R system cleaning technology and received the IAQA award for product technology for the year 2001. His current research interest is the impact of maintenance on HVAC systems on air quality, system life, and energy efficiency. Bob lectures extensively in indoor air quality. He consults with contractors, building owners, and other HVAC system maintenance and indoor air quality needs and was a contributing author on both the 1999 and 2003 ASHRAE handbooks. His undergraduate degree is from Oklahoma State University with an MBA through the Gulf Oil Program at Harvard University, and we'll give you his contact information at the end. Whoa, that was a mouthful, Bob. Welcome to the show. Let's see if we can unmute Bob. Uh, hey, Joe, I think we actually have a little bit of intro music we, for him. Oh, yeah. Let's yeah, get we intro. Do, we All do. Right. He's an expert. He says he knows better than you. He's got the stuff to prove it all to. And he knows just what to do. And he'll get right to it just as soon as you fill out this form and that one, too. And lay all your cards on the table For the expert 
you, CJ. Hello, Bob. I kind of like that. I'm I <laughs> thinking of adopting that as the theme song. <laughs> Bob, I'll tell you what. I I learned a few things here. I, I you know, so most of our guests know I'm on the IAQA board of directors with you, and uh, you've been the president for a couple of years now. And I, I didn't realize some of the uh, background that you have. It's one of the most uh, distinguished backgrounds that I believe we've ever had. So welcome to the show. Well, thank you. That's a compliment. I, I I've uh, kicked around for a while. You um, I, I got interested in the indoor environment. You know, we're, we're all uh, either beneficiaries or victims of the indoor environment, but we don't notice it very much unless something brings it to our attention. And it was brought to my attention in 1987 when I was Vice President of Administrative Services at MD Anderson. And <clears throat> I got called into the office of the Vice President of Medicine one day, and he had four patient files on his desk. And uh, unfortunately, a cancer patient file gets to be a pretty thick document uh, because there are so many tests and everything else, records and everything else. And so these four massive files were sitting there and he said these are the files of four patients who have died over the last nine months and we think something inside of the institution might have led to those deaths hmm. and we started a uh, investigation and found out that those four patients were indeed killed by an air handler Wow! and it didn't fall on them uh, unfortunately, it had a rather uh, extensive growth of a fungus called Aspergillus niger, pretty common fungi in the outdoor environment, and but it shouldn't be growing inside. And it was released, inhaled by these patients. They developed aspergillosis, which is a form of pneumonia, and of course they didn't have any immune systems and and weren't able to survive. And I decided right then and there that that wasn't a good thing, and it really has changed my life. I decided uh, I'd always been a uh, token member of ASHRAE. You know, you pay your dues and you uh, read the books, and that's about it. And I got real interested. I started finding out about this fairly new field at that time of indoor air quality. And as they say, the rest is history. It caused me to uh, move from Houston to Tampa, where I had an opportunity to work with a, a couple of laboratories that allowed me to develop data that ultimately led to uh, some technology that I feel does a pretty good job of discouraging growth of organisms in the indoor environment. And, and you've continued uh, to not only focus on HVAC and uh, issues, but all indoor environmental quality issues uh, over the years. What, you know, what was, in in your experience, um, what percentage of these problems are caused by the HVAC system? I've seen statistics all over the board, Joe, but generally most of the people that uh, I think know what they're talking about say that in about 80% of the indoor air quality cases, uh, there is an involvement of the 
ventilation system or the air conditioning system. And I use ventilation system because there are a lot of buildings in this world that aren't air conditioned or heated artificially, but they have either natural ventilation or forced air ventilation. And that can play into a indoor air quality problem. And it really plays into it two ways. If you've got a dirty or uncared for ventilation system, it can contribute contamination to the indoor environment and either cause or contribute to an indoor air quality problem. If you have a system that is not working right, uh, it may not perform either its function of cleaning the air properly or dehumidifying the air. And of course, when we have too much moisture in the air, I think all of us know that leads to a lot of problems. Then on the other hand, if you've got a contaminated building, that can contaminate the air conditioning system. And if you don't take care of that, when you get the building all cleaned up real nicely, it'll just recontaminate itself. I see. Now, Bob, let's talk for a moment about some of your volunteer activities. Uh, one of that I'm not as familiar with as the others. Let's start with that, the Consumer Specialty Products Association. I know you mention them quite a bit when we talk in meetings and etc. Could you give us a little background on your involvement with them and what got you involved with them and what types of, uh, of how they affect indoor environmental quality issues? Well, um, the Consumer Specialty Products Association is better known by the company it keeps, I guess. That is the trade association where all of the people who manufacture the things that you find under your sink uh, gather together. The, some of the companies that are member companies are Clorox, uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, Ecolab, uh S.C. Johnson Company, Johnson Diversity, uh, Reckitt and Benkiser, which is a name that not many people recognize until they realize that they make uh, Resolve carpet cleaners, they make uh, Lysol, which is a very popular disinfectant, uh, Bon Ami Company. Uh, they're uh, probably... 225 companies that are member companies in CSPA. And there's a couple of reasons for that organization existing. One is uh, to uh, educate the public on uh, these consumer products and, and how they benefit us in our lives and also uh, the issues around their proper use so that nobody's harmed by them. Uh, the second reason for the organization existing is is uh, public policy advocacy. Uh, CSPA has a rather formidable presence in Washington and in the various states and tries to educate the legislators when they're passing regulations so that those regulations are balanced and serve the interests of both the public and uh, the people who manufacture these products. I see. And are you on, uh, I I passed it over in the, uh, in your introduction, but I, I assume they have some committees that you work with as well, or? Well, uh, yeah, I, I 
again, I have this affliction where I can't seem to hold my hand down at my side. <laughs> and uh, I, I chair the Indoor Air Quality Committee and have for quite a few years. Uh, I'm also on the board of two of the divisions within CSBA. Uh, the uh, Air Care Division, which uh, deals with products that impact the air, and the uh, antimicrobials division, which uh, is concerned with products that have antimicrobial properties, disinfectants, sanitizers, and so on and so forth. And recently, I was asked to join the board of directors of the Consumer Specialty Insurance uh, Corporation, which is a uh, risk retention insurance company that provides product liability insurance to members of CSBA. Well, I'll tell you, Bob, I, I didn't realize all of that, and um, I, I have a question that Cliff left, and, and I know that you were interested in answering this. Volunteers are sometimes criticized as using their volunteerism as a means of furthering their business interests. How do you balance this personal business financial interest and the need with doing what's right? Well, uh, first of all, I think anybody who says that a volunteer like we are in the industry uh, is paid in some way for the hours that we put in uh, would have to face the fact that we're willing to work for very, very low pay. Amen. Because <laughs> any, any, any benefit that may accrue to us from volunteering in these organizations uh, is pretty doggone small when you figure the number of hours that you put in. It, it's just something that I think uh, you decide that you're going to do or not. For me, uh, it was uh, really a passion because of the reason that I got into the indoor community. I wanted to make sure that that things were done as well as possible because I came in convinced that not only was this a comfort issue, it was actually a human health issue that was very, very serious. And so I wanted to make sure that that was uh, reflected as much as possible. Uh, I think I think it's fair to say that anybody that volunteers in a industry organization, in the back of their mind, they do have some thought that, well, maybe that'll benefit their business in some some way. I think, unfortunately, that there are a few, and, and I do believe it's very few, people in the industry who try to manipulate their volunteer activities and have more than a direct impact on their business. I think they, they, there are a few people, unfortunately, who try to uh, get laws passed or get rules passed or do, do, get a standard passed that directly benefits their company. And shame on those people. Uh, I, I, I think, first of all, I think the world finds out those people real quickly and they're, I think most people are more intelligent than to fall for that, and they're kind of gently eased out of the responsible positions in industry. But there are a few of those people, and, and uh, 
think they cause this feeling that a lot of people have that uh, uh, we're in it for something, if you will. On on another note, as with respect to your volunteer activities, ASHRAE, um, you've just recently received the Distinguished Service Award from ASHRAE, and I, I'm sure you're very proud of that, and I congratulate you for receiving that. And I want to talk to you briefly about the um, standard that you're working on now. I believe it's the 180P. Yes. Uh, first of all, to, to so the alarm doesn't go off again. ASHRAE <laughs> is the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. And uh, uh, interest, and it's a worldwide society. Why we call it the American Society, I'm not sure, but literally the membership is worldwide. And I was sitting in a dinner in Hong Kong uh, after a ASHRAE meeting over there, and uh, was surrounded by all Chinese uh, uh, members at the table. And I posed the question. I said, "Doesn't it bother you?" that this is called the American Society when it really isn't? And they said, oh, no, no. You never want to change that because when it's our American technology is valued in Asia. And if it wasn't, if, because it's called the American Society, our companies and our governments support us in being active. And financially, we can afford to maintain our membership, attend meetings, and so on and so forth. If you change that name to the International Society, suddenly all that support would go away. <laughs> so wow. I thought that was very interesting. That's fascinating, but, uh, actually. Uh, as I said before, I my membership in ASHRAE has been at two levels. One is I've been a member, dues-paying member for a long time, but uh, Unlike a lot of people educated as an engineer, I've never been a real engineer. Early in my career, I went into facility management and uh, uh, never was a design engineer who, who had a professional engineer license and could stamp plans and do all that. I was on the other end of the, the stale being a management type engineer. And uh, I got really involved because of the incident at MD Anderson and because of my feeling that there is this strong connection between ventilation systems and indoor air quality. And one of the first things I noticed was when I started learning about indoor air quality is that there was an uncanny relationship between, or it seemed to me that there was this relationship between the level of maintenance of a ventilation system and the incidence of problems in the indoor environment. In other words, uh, where you found very, very well clean, uh, maintained systems, uh, you tend to find a lot of indoor air quality problems. Conversely, where you found neglected systems that weren't operating well, uh, you could almost always expect to have some level of indoor air quality problem. And so I started looking, why don't people maintain their their facilities better? Uh, why, why doesn't this happen? And I started talking to a lot of facility managers, and they
they said two things. One is uh, it isn't a priority in our company. And number two, we don't have the resources to do it. And uh, also, I got a lot of, well, uh, we do what is necessary to comply with the warranty requirements on their equipment, but that's really all we have. There isn't any any guideline or standard of what is considered maintenance. And so I started becoming a evangelist, if you will, with an ASHRAE for we need a minimum standard for maintenance. And, and, and wasn't this a rather big change for ASHRAE? Well, it was a huge change for ASHRAE because the response I got was, is, well, you're right. Maintenance is important and systems ought to be maintained, but it's not our business. Hmm. It's, it's, it's somebody else's responsibility. Somebody else should be writing that standard. We're design engineers. And then as indoor air quality problems became more widely understood and uh, a lot more people became concerned about them, uh, engineers started getting blamed, right or wrong, for designing faulty systems or engineering systems that didn't prevent those problems. Didn't clean themselves, and huh? <laughs> and, and they found themselves sitting in courtrooms defending themselves against uh, accusations that you might say are silly, but still it took time out of their schedules, it took money to hire attorneys to to prove that they didn't design a faulty system. And so the interest level with an ASHRAE picked up dramatically that, hey, this standard is needed. We, we need a minimum level of maintenance for HVAC systems. And uh, so uh, in the early 2000s, uh, it started becoming a good idea and finally several of the technical committees uh, forwarded a recommendation for a creation of a standards committee, and we held our first meeting in June of 2004. And you're pretty and close to completion now? We're very close to completion. We had the stand, we'd, uh, we had a, a very diverse committee. It's a well-balanced committee with a lot of different interests on it. And yet it came to agreement very, very quickly as to what was needed and the proper level and, and language. So we were pretty complete by June of 2006, which I understand is some kind of an ASHRAE record to write a standard with two years. And so in the fall of last year, we went out for a first public review, got comments back from that, based on the comments, decided at our meeting in Dallas that we would go out for a second public review, which closed the end of April, and we're finishing up the processing of all these comments under the ASHRAE uh, standards procedures, uh, processing comments that you receive is pretty serious business. It has to be extremely well documented. Uh, it has to be done in a very open and transparent way. For example, 
when I, when we send a commenter a response to their comment, uh, if they come back with some defense of that comment, we've got to distribute that out to the entire committee and allow the committee members to change their vote on that comment. And uh, this is repeated time and time again, and so it makes it a, a rather rigorous process and rather difficult, but I think a excellent process, because ASHRAE is considered the undisputed world leader in standards and guidelines on how heating, ventilation, air conditioning systems should be operated, maintained, designed, and everything else. Maintains over 160 active standards and uh, has a standard support staff of some 34 individuals. So we consider it very, very serious business. Well, and uh, I, I did get the additional honor of being or, or I'm not sure if it's an honor or a penalty, but I was voted on the standards committee uh, and effective at the end of the meeting that just ended in Long Beach. Uh, I'm a member of that committee and two of its subcommittees. Interesting. Now, Bob, I'm going to try and combine a, a text question here with one that I had, and then we've got to take a short break and go to the IE Connections segment. But... Um, where do you see, and the question was, where do you see the industry going in the next five years? I'd kind of like to take that and tie it into where do you see the industry going with respect to this new standard? How do you think this new standard will affect the industry over the next five years? Well, that's an interesting question and one that received, in, in a way, an awful lot of attention at the ASHRAE conference that just ended. Uh, as you may be aware, Terry Townsend, who's the immediate past president of ASHRAE, uh, set a objective for the organization of supporting sustainable or green design uh, buildings that 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 enhance the environment rather than damaging the environment. Well, uh, the new president that just took over has narrowed that focus down even more into he wants energy efficient buildings and the ASHRAE energy standard is supposed to uh, result in 30% less energy usage for HVAC systems in buildings by 2010 and that is a huge objective well, one of the things that we have found since we've been designing and building these green or sustainable buildings is that after a couple of years, they are no longer operating at the design level, and that's primarily because of lack of maintenance. The systems have deteriorated and are no longer producing the results they were designed to produce. So. And a very important objective of ASHRAE is going to be not only to design very, very energy-efficient buildings. In fact, they're heading in 2035 towards a net zero energy building, a building that requires no external energy to operate. And uh, 
enable to meet that objective, you've got to have an incredibly fine level of maintenance. So I think the maintenance standard along with the society objectives of, of lowering the environmental footprint of our buildings and making them very, very energy efficient are really going to set the page. And I see this is where the uh, industry is going. Um, we've had a, a great rely, uh, focus in the last few years on problems. Problems like VOCs, problems like uh, mold contamination, and, and problems like these. I think those problems, to some extent, will stay with us. Uh, I think we're also going to start focusing more on indoor allergens, uh, although mold is an important allergen, there are many others that we haven't looked at that closely. I'm gonna, I think we're going to see much more emphasis on those. But I think we're going to see our role as uh, a energy-efficient and sustainable indoor environment is also a very high-quality indoor environment in terms of people comfort and uh, and freedom from health effects. That's where I see us going. Sounds like you've got us headed that direction not only the next five years, but probably the next uh, 20 years. I think it's going to be quite a challenge for the whole world. That's interesting, Bob. I'll tell you, Bob, what we'd like to do is take a quick break here. We've got to first do a quick... um, highlight from a previous show so we can get one of our sponsors names in then we've got to bring in the ie connections gang can i bring you back in about uh, 10 minutes certainly thank you all right thank you and now an ieq radio highlight brought to you by john don products for restoration and abatement contractors shop johndon.com Um, are you familiar uh, with ATP? Uh, <laughs> I, I am, but I'm not necessarily sure that our listeners are, so if you could just you know, right. explain what it is. Okay. Um, the device we use is called a, a luminometer, and it's based on bioluminescence. Bioluminescence is basically the chemical reaction we see as light coming from lightning bugs. Uh, we use a disposable swab that's based in a, in a chemical like that that's found in lightning bugs. It produces light when it comes into contact with ATP. ATP is adenosine triphosphate. It's a chemical found in all living cells. So when this chemical comes into contact with with cells, it actually generates a glow. Now, we swab a surface with this chemical. We place the swab into the luminometer and it reads the amount of light produced by the reaction. Um, and it, it displays this, uh, this amount of light in units of bioluminescence. The more biological contamination there is uh, on a surface, uh, the higher reading on the meter. And as a matter of fact, this device is so sensitive, it, it can measure down to as few as 100 bacterial cells on a surface. Okay. And the, the whole the whole uh, test takes less than a minute. 
and it's a tremendous tool for us to test the effectiveness of our students as well as our technicians in the field. Case dismissed. (laughs) That was Kent Berg from show number 43 discussing how they handle determining whether a crime scene cleanup has been completed properly or not. The next segment we have today is going to be brought to us by IE Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. I believe we have Steve Sauer on the line. Steve, uh, let's see. I, I, I we have see. music for him, Joe. Oh, we do, yeah. You got a kitten up a tree, well, come to me, and I'll see it makes it on the front page. The mayor's mother broke a toe, they gotta know. Stop the press, it's the mass, it's a scandal of the age. Hell, it's big news, another shock to rock. Big news. Steve Sauer, are you there? Yeah, I'm so glad that was my intro music. Grease was my favorite movie. (laughs) (laughs) What's happening this month, Steve? Uh, Well, we got some good stuff. In uh, my nearly five years writing for Indoor Environment Connections, it took until yesterday for me to get one of those situations in the newspaper business where I get to say, stop the presses and mean it. Well, here's what happened. We just learned that legislation in Florida to regulate mold professionals had a fresh signature from the governor, meaning he had given his final approval to a bill for the state to regulate and license mold remediators and mold assessors. For a little historical background, this is something lawmakers in Florida had been trying to do for about four years as a means of consumer protection, and it's something that has happened only in two other states ever. Joe, I bet you can name them off the top of your head. Oh, Texas and Louisiana. You got it. So the licensure uh, requirements in Florida won't take full effect for another three years, but the work now begins to make the rules for determining how the exams will take place, who will give them, will anybody trying uh, to get a state license be exempt from taking the official licensing exam if they can demonstrate their competencies in another way, such as through industry certifications. All those questions will be answered in time, but the work can start now, and there will be plenty of time for stakeholders to make their marks in that process. It's kind of like uh, poking badgers with spoons. But the big news is that <laughs> I'm, I'm Dan Rather here. The big news is that licensing is happening in Florida for sure, and the start date is July 1st, 2010. Oh, so boy. we managed to stop the presses in time to include an article on that. Oh, you got that and in the, in the July? Out, oh, good. Uh, Oh, yeah. Well, actually, the, 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 it was pretty funny that the article that we took out to get that one in was also on the same topic, but all it said was that uh, the governor's decision had yet to be made. So I was really happy we were able to update the paper to so quickly to you know provide the latest news to our readership. We, we got Otherwise, a note here, too, that um, Oklahoma sort of has a regulation. Uh, they've got a one-pager, I believe, on not being the um, investigator or the contractor and the person doing the post-remediation verification on the same job. But go ahead, Steve. I'm sorry. Yeah, and that's actually one thing that Florida is looking at doing. Uh, they, they actually have the authority to you know put in, in effect, a rule like that. Um, I'll tell you, Steve, I, I'm sitting here just, like, shaking my head going, oh, three years. What, I, can, <laughs> I can just hear people calling me over the next two years going, well, what do I do now? And what course exactly, do I take? Yeah. And what certification? Oh, boy. Okay, keep That's it coming. It has yet to be determined. <laughs> 
Well, here's another thing that's, uh, that's coming up in July. We have a story on a lawsuit that pits an industry nonprofit against a company that it says violated the association's trademark. At first, it seemed like a ho-hum story, something that happens all the time. So what? Big deal. Move on. Take me out to the ball game. Until we realized that two of the parties being sued were members of that nonprofit's board of directors. The organization that filed this suit in May is the Restoration Industry Association, formerly known as ASCR or ASCARIA, RIA, the Restoration Industry Association. Call them whatever you like, but just don't call them pushovers because they're going out on a limb to protect a term for which they believe they have a trademark claim. The association says they have been using the term certified restorer for 30-plus years for a top-level professional designation in the restoration industry, and they sued because they believe a company established a few years ago in Idaho uh, called Certified Restorers Consulting Group is causing them uh, harm because their name has that phrase, Certified Restorer, in it. So the company, in its formative years, involved RIA board members Michael Griggs and Ron Reese, who themselves are certified restorers. Well, the story got even more interesting when we discovered that the trademark in question has never been registered by anyone, which calls into question whether the association has a rightful claim to ownership of the trademark and, ergo, the rights to operate as if it does, like sending a cease and desist letter last year to this company, demanding it rebrand itself, offering to license use of the term, that sort of thing. We were able to speak with some of the major players in this story, although both sides were understandably limited as to what they could say due to the ongoing litigation. The article takes you through uh, the timeline of this dispute, how it got to the point of litigation, and which way the major players would like this to go. Pretty much everybody agrees they would like it to be settled amicably. That's another piece going into the July issue, which I have to say, on a personal level, is going to be a pretty memorable issue for me. I, uh, I've been involved with the paper regularly since August 2002, and I've held the title of editor since May 2004, and I'm now moving on. Next oh. month's issue will be my last one as editor, although I'm still going to have a presence in the paper for some time to come. Oh, splendid! This calls for a sexy party! (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it it is a happy moment. I'll be doing some freelance articles here and there. I'm changing careers, still going to be in writing, but no longer in journalism. I'm putting in a couple of weeks at the American Society for the Prevention of Midget on Midget Crime. But uh, (laughs) after that... I've accepted a position as the senior writer for a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. called the Foundation for Biomedical Research. Mold is stupid. But I can already see some areas where the topics I'll be involved with there overlap with indoor air quality. And I'll still be in IE Connections every now and then. So you folks haven't seen or heard the last from me, for sure. Uh, I sure hope (laughs) (laughs) We've always enjoyed having you here and uh, look forward to hoping, you know, stopping back from time to time and and good luck with your uh, new endeavor there do you have um, do you have an announcement as to who's going to take your place for us yeah and uh, and actually I believe that he is on the uh, the line that you may have uh, for Mr. Yacobellis I'm not sure Uh, Um, oh maybe uh, IQ Paul down here let's try that uh, try that one Joe okay I am I'm pleased to be handing over the reins uh, here at IE Connections immediately to this very talented fellow by the name of John Miller. 
I've had the pleasure of working with him the past couple of weeks, bringing him up to speed on some of the big names in the industry, the ongoing storylines, the fact that there is this acronym police that'll come and get you, (laughs) things like that. And uh, so he's more than capable, in my estimation, of uh, carrying on where I'm leaving off. Well, thank you. John, are you on the line? I am. How you doing? Great, John. Welcome to IAQ Radio, and uh, welcome to the indoor air quality industry. You uh, couldn't have picked a better show to start out with. You've got the uh, the icon, Mr. Baker, coming back here in just a moment, and uh, I'm sure you'll be talking to him quite a bit in the future. Yes, plan on it. I uh, we really uh, want to welcome you, and uh, when you get comfortable enough to join us and do a IE connections, please let us know. And in the meantime, uh, welcome aboard. Thanks a lot. All right, thank you, John. And thank you, Steve. And uh, don't forget, you can still stop by Indian Lake on your way to uh, Ohio anytime you'd like. Will do. Thank you. All right. Next uh, up, we've got another uh, little segment we want to do real quick from the uh, highlights. And now, an IAQ Radio highlight brought to you by Dry East Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry East is first in drying solutions. Blame, anything can be toxic, so we want to get away from the use of just toxic mold and uh, black mold and just discuss the fact that too much of anything can be bad. Oh, absolutely. It's the dose that kills. It's not uh, uh, the, the chemical. Yeah, uh, Too much of table salt can kill you. Uh, too much if you drink distilled water faster than you can eliminate it. And you read that sometimes during the summer when little kids have drinking contests. All of a sudden people are dead from drinking water that nobody thinks of as being toxic. It's the dose that kills. This principle has been known for 500 years, and uh, it's not the poison, it is the dose. Too much of anything is not good for you, and it doesn't matter what it is. That was from show one with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, who was not able to join us this week. But we do have back guest number one, Bob Baker. Are you back on the line? Hi there, Joe. Yeah, I am. All right, great. Uh, Sorry it took me a little longer than 10, but but we got it all in, Bob. I really have a bunch of other things I wanted to talk to you about. Let's pick one. How about the Indoor Air Quality Association? Uh, What's what's going on, Bob? Uh, What can we look forward to here in the future? Well, there are several things that uh, we've uh, accomplished over the last couple of years in the Indoor Air Quality. Association. Of course, the biggest one and the one that's uh, uh, taken the most time, attention, and everything else has been the unification, where we sorted out uh, three organizations, the American Indoor Air Quality Council, uh, IESO, the International Indoor, uh, Indoor Environmental Standards Organization. Yeah, the acronyms will get you. We we almost got it. (laughs) Flew under the radar there. Almost got got the siren. They almost pulled Uh, you over, Bob. (laughs) uh, And and looked at duplications between those three associations and and rationalized them and said, hey, we're each going to have a 
separate agenda going forward and support each other, but uh, uh, get rid of a lot of confusion. So that's taken a lot of time. The second thing that I'm really proud of is that we have developed and strengthened a lot of relationships with other organizations in the industry uh, or close to the industry. Uh, ASHRAE we've talked a lot about and we've gotten, we now have a formal liaison with ASHRAE, uh, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, a uh, very important organization. We talked about CSPA where I do a lot of work, but we've also formed relationships between IAQ and CSPA. And certainly a very important relationship that we continue to deepen and explore is the one with the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, both the Indoor Air Quality Division and the uh, Antimicrobials Division from a regulatory standpoint. Uh, I guess the other thing that has really been a new learning for IAQA and one where we continue to learn is public advocacy, uh, government relations, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's, it's an area that uh, a lot of people don't like to think about because they think, well, lobbying is, is kind of bad, and we really aren't lobbyists at IAQA. We try, I think we consider ourselves more education, educationalists. Maybe that's a poor word, but educators. Uh, we try to uh, uh, bring out the issues and make sure that the legislators and others understand the issues and the implications of what they are considering, making laws and regulations around. And uh, that's an important function. It's a complex function, and it's especially challenging in IAQA because the membership of IAQA is so diverse. We represent manufacturers, we represent assessors, we represent researchers. Uh, our membership is made up of members of the general public who are interested in the indoor environment, as well as healthcare workers and a raft of other people. And naturally, all of these different stakeholders can have different positions on a subject. So this mandates that we not take a lobbying position, if you will, but one of education, of bringing the facts out and making sure that those who are considering passing laws have the facts in front of them. So uh, uh, that's where the organization's going. I think it's a good move. I think we're uh, one of the things that's currently underway and I think is very important is we, we're doing a complete reassessment of our education uh, function, and uh, I think we will uh, have a number of interesting offerings coming out by the time of our conference, and this is a time for, a, I acknowledge, unpaid uh, uh, commercial. Uh, we do have, uh, in October, the Indoor Air Quality Conference at the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas, Nevada, and it's right in mid-month, and I don't have it in front of me. Joe, do you remember offhand? I do not have, have it either, Mark. We will have to uh, no. figure that out. Maybe someone can text it in for us, but while they are... No, we got it right here in front of us. Oh, We've great. Got the, 
16th, 17th, and 18th of October at the MGM Grand. All right. No. And I hope uh, all the listeners can enjoy join us there. We're going to have a very strong technical program and a lot of interesting times. Bob, what? Uh, going back to some text questions we've had, um, one was, uh, do you think there will be more states passing these types of regulations, or do you think, you mentioned EPA a moment ago, is there some way that we can't kind of get this all under one umbrella instead of having every state pass their own regulation? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about that. Uh, as you uh, may recall, uh, uh, the congressman from Michigan uh, put a couple of bills in front of the Congress uh, three, three or four years ago. Conyers. Yeah. Yep. And Conyers. And uh, they really never gained any traction. Uh, and uh, interestingly, when I was in uh, uh, Shanghai last uh, week before last, I was involved in a news conference, and one of the questions I was asked was, is what regulations are there around the indoor environment in the United States? And my response was, we do not tend to pass those kinds of regulations. We tend to let people self-regulate. And I think that has exemplified by the lack of indoor environment regulations on a federal level in the U.S. And I, I don't see that changing a whole lot in the near future because uh, before we pass laws in the U.S., there's got to be very, very strong science behind those laws. And the indoor environment is something that we still understand very imperfectly. Now, uh, there's a current study underway that I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing the results of and that's one that uh, IAQA is one of the sponsors of this study. It's being done by the Univer uh, University, St. Louis University. Uh, uh, Professor Dixit is the principal investigator, and it is a survey of all the practitioners in the field that they could get a hold of on uh, all the different issues around mold remediation and mold and it is the first time that we've really had somebody uh, approach that from a well-designed survey standpoint and as somebody who has taken the survey a couple of weeks ago uh, it is an incredibly well-designed survey that's very much in depth and I think is going to produce a lot of fascinating information for us. And uh, as I recall, IAQA did some in-kind type uh, research contributions there? Absolutely. We're a, we're a major participant in that study. Excellent. Excellent, Bob. Well, listen, I'd, I'd be negligent if I didn't ask you real quickly what's happening with the IICRC standard. You were the, uh, what was it, the professional mold remediation. Uh, you were the chairman of that standard at one time. and uh, Yeah, the, the standard and reference guide for professional mold remediation, IICRC S520, was published first in December of 2003. And IICRC 
uh, wanted, anticipated, since it was a brand new standard, that there would be a lot of comments. And so they decided to immediately uh, constitute another standards body and update the standard. And uh, that went well. There was a lot of uh, commentary, a lot of new information brought in. And unfortunately, uh, the uh, a lot of good work on the part of a lot of people has gotten clouded by a few issues. And and uh, the major issue was was the term indoor environmental professional. Uh, in the original standard, that was intended to be a generic description of. Uh, other people that might be utilized during a mold remediation project. And uh, IICRC decided uh, to trademark that term and uh, uh, trademark both IEP, the initials, and Indoor Environmental Professional, the entire term. And that created an awful lot of concern in the industry. And in fact, the Indoor Air Quality Association uh, posted a comment on the public review of the document uh, expressing concern about the use of that, the use of a trademark term in a standards document. And uh, it was because of that uh, uh, comment that we posted that I was put in a position of, of conflict of interest and having to resign my position as chair of the committee. Uh, that uh, issue has been uh, very, very difficult, and, and uh, IICRC has come out and stated that uh, the people who were concerned about that uh, misunderstood their intentions, that their intentions were never to make it a, a certification or a, a term of art, but rather keep it as a generic. But that has remained confused and in many people's minds still is confused today. So uh, that's, that's an issue that's got to be resolved before the updated version of the, uh, this S520 document can be released. And uh, I guess that's go a good ahead. example of um, of the types of issues that can come up when you're trying to develop these ash well uh, ANSI accredited standards as ASHRAE did, and and as they do regularly, and, and that's why it takes so long. I I would assume. Well, and that's right, and and you know a lot of people have been very very critical of IRCRC because of all this. You've got to recognize this is the only the second ANSI standard that IICRC has produced. So they're very much on the lower end of the learning curve. And let me tell you, it's a long learning curve. Uh, in addition, you may, you heard me earlier say that ASHRAE has a professional staff of some 35 people supporting their standards effort. IICRC, I don't believe, has even one full-time paid staff member. They have several uh, part-time consultants who work in that, but it's an incredibly challenging job to run a 
standards operation under ANSI Essentials with without a paid staff to back up that effort. And so uh, it's real easy to throw bricks at something that's gotten a lot of uh, attention. But at the same time, uh, my hat's off to an organization that tried to navigate the very, very complex and difficult ANSI waters without a professional staff behind it. And uh, uh, I think that uh, uh, IICRC will get beyond this and uh, hopefully they will continue to produce standards and bring more things to the industry that the industry needs. I guess my biggest overall comment about the, uh, the S520 standard is that, uh, and you know, hindsight is 2020. So that don't please don't take this as criticism. But before that standard was produced, somebody should have produced a standard on mold assessment. Because in writing the standard and in all the issues that have been difficult about the standard, the lack of a broadly accepted way to decide whether a building was contaminated with mold, and if so, that was a serious contamination, and evaluate and assess that contamination has been a huge stumbling block and a huge source of controversy in developing the standard. The standard wasn't about assessment, and, and nobody ever claimed it was, but assessment has always gotten in the way. And if an assessment standard had been written and and accepted by the industry before the S520 document was produced, a lot of the issues that have plagued S520 simply would not have been there. Well, maybe we'll see that happen with uh, the Indoor Environmental Standards Organization or uh, AIHA. I know they're working on a green book, but it's not a standard, I guess. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I'm familiar with it, and I've been familiar with it for quite a few years, and I haven't seen it yet. I see. And, and, and that's not a criticism. It's just an observation that this isn't a simple task. I understand. And, and again, we, 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 we are still learning about the science. And uh, 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 I, was, I was received a call from a reporter uh, last week out in uh, California. There's a hospital that is going to be tented and closed down for 10 days and pumped full of chlorine dioxide. And uh, the reporter was asking me what I thought about that. And I said, well, what I think about it is that all of the existing guidelines and standards, the New York City, the EPA, and the IICRC all rely on source removal. The, the, the principle that you remove the mold, uh, get rid of the water problems that have caused the mold to grow in the first place, and that is the accepted way to remediate. And so uh, the chlorine dioxide method certainly is not one that is consistent with any of those guidelines or standards. So uh, uh, there's not much data out there as to whether it's good or bad. Well, hopefully we'll be getting more data, and this is still in its infancy. I know when Dr. Wow and I discussed the issue, he compares this time in IAQ to about 
the 1980 era in the asbestos industry and um that industry took another well another 10 years before it really got some significant uh regulation through ahira and other regulations and now they've pretty much got it down to a a pretty good science and uh, it may take us another 10 years bob very good observation very good observation well, Bob, before we go, I had, a, I had one other thing I really wanted to... I have a bunch of questions, but one thing that kind of stands out, when you're working on this ASHRAE HVAC Maintenance Standard Committee, how did the Amer- is it ACCA, A-C-C-A, the Air Conditioning Contractors Association, become involved with this? They seems to me it came out of nowhere. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, uh we, we had started on the effort, and unknown to us, ACA had also decided uh, to develop a similar standard. And so the uh, standards chair at ASHRAE and the uh, people in charge of standards at ACA contacted each other. Uh, the ASHRAE executive director and I and, and uh, Claire Ramspeck, the ASHRAE uh, manager of standards, all went up to Washington and sat down with the ACA people and said, what are we trying to accomplish here? And we discovered we were trying to accomplish the same thing. And so we said, well, why don't we put our efforts together? We think that uh, the contractors, who are your membership, bring an awful lot to the table and uh, uh, we uh, want to take advantage of that. And so that's what happened, and that has proven to be a lot smoother than anybody thought it would be, and more importantly, a lot more productive. I think the document is vastly better than it would have been otherwise because of that involvement. And when do you expect the final document will be available? Well, uh, we, we, we have, based on the comments that came out of the last public review, we have taken a red line copy of the document and given it to the ASHRAE staff and posed the question, are the changes that we have made, based on those comments, substantive or not? Substantive is a term that has great meaning under ANSI essentials. If they rule that they are substantive, then we will have to go out with a partial public review only on those changes. Uh, If they say, no, they're just editorial and they're clarification-type changes, we will move immediately to publication. So that would mean it could be published as early as the end of this year because publication would have to be approved by both the ASHRAE Standards Committee and the Board of Directors at the Tech Weekend in October, or it would be published sometime after the ASHRAE meeting uh, in New York City in January of next year. So it'll either be a late 2007 or early 2008 publication. Well, before we go, Bob, i got to get one more in here. Do you see any, uh, you know, this is a big, big change, a maintenance standard. I guess the big question for the building owners is, you know, how are they going to get this into the budget? Um, Are there any government incentives or other incentives that will help facilities managers get the money they need to implement this type of program? 
Well, Ross Montgomery and I conducted a study on a building in New York City, and the results of that study were published in the ASHRAE Journal in November 2004. And that study suggests that by implementing some of the uh, practices recommended in 180, uh, this building could save a quarter of a million dollars a year. Now, the cost of implementing those practices is uh, about $50,000 a year. Hmm. Now, I can't imagine a building owner that wouldn't spend $50,000 a year to save $250,000 a year. Uh, if that building owner exists, I think they should go back to business school and take a couple more analytical courses <laughs> because that's a pretty basic deal. And... Uh, you don't even have to talk about the comfort issues and everything else. I'm working with a chain of big box stores in Bangkok, Thailand, and they are about four years old. And they're, air, they're having tremendous comfort problems inside. And we brought in a test and balance firm and air handlers that were designed to move 30,000 cubic foot of air a minute are moving from 4 to 11,000 CFM. Wow. Well, it's not hard to figure out why they've got comfort problems inside the building. They're simply not delivering the air that the designer said to deliver. And it's maintenance. It, it's the wrong kind of maintenance was performed on these units, and there are some major problems with them after only four years. And I could sit here and cite example after example. In fact, uh, ironically, some of the greatest interest in this standard is in Asia. Uh, I've been uh, asked to, uh, well, I've been brought over to Hong Kong, to Shanghai, and to Singapore to talk to the government officials there and tell them what this standard's about, and all three of those entities are considering adopting this as part of their regulations on how buildings are maintained. Well, it sounds like the RGB group is going to have its hands full, and it uh, sounds like you'll be doing quite a bit of uh, work with facilities managers and helping them to implement these types of maintenance practices. And uh, I really want to thank you for joining us here today. Bob, by the way, I've got a message here from uh, an S champion. I think you may know who that is. And uh, she's asking if you'll buy her a drink in Las Vegas, Bob. So uh, You tell her she's got it absolutely nailed. You got it. And she also mentioned that uh, HUD was also sponsoring that uh, St. Louis University uh, program, I believe. Is that correct? I believe that is correct. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Bob. And uh, I, before we go, is there anything I missed that you'd like to add? No, just that I, I hope that in my new business, a lot of the work is in the U.S. Because I have, with United Airlines, I've progressed from the point where the flight attendant said, Mr. Baker, we really thank you for your business, to 
Oh, you're here again? <laughs> Bob, you've got, I sure hope you can get more in the U.S. as well, but it sounds like uh, they you're in demand in Asia. What can I say? Um, and before you go, could you tell our listeners how to uh, contact you if they're interested in uh, asking you further questions or maybe getting your services? Well, I, I, we, we have an Internet site that's under construction right now. I hope within a few weeks it'll be done. It's www.rgbgp.com, and I can be reached at rgb at rgbgp.com or uh, on the telephone at 813-774-4651. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us today, Bob. We really appreciate having you on. Look forward to having you on here again in the future. I'd also like to thank Steve Sauer on his last uh, appearance as the editor of IE Connections and welcome the new editor, John Miller. And uh, also, of course, thank Cyber Jockey here for all of his help here in the studio. Of course, Joe. It's a pleasure as always. Great uh, sound effects today, Zach. Why, thank you. And, uh, of course, last but not least, we'd like to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please join us again here next week at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 